Alright, welcome to the Andrew Scut Show. My guest today is Dr. Yoram Solomon. Uh, he is a author, speaker, educator, and otherwise expert on trust. And he's also got a new book out called The Book of Trust. So naturally, we talked all about how trust works, his eight principles of trust. Uh, we talked about how you can become more trustworthy and how organizations can build trust among their team members to become more effective in the workplace. It was a overall masterclass on trust and how trust works. And personally, I got a lot out of the conversation, and I hope you do as well. So here we go. And we are now live. Yoram Solomon, nice to have you here, man. Good to be with you, Andrew. Did I, did I get the pronunciation right? You got it perfect. I mean, you Nailed got it, it the way my wife gets it, and that's good enough for me. Oh no. Okay. Uh, I have a feeling that <laughs> I, won't, I won't make any comments on that in case she's listening. So, <laughs> uh, well, cool. So I guess just to kind of kick things off, do you want to uh, just introduce yourself, tell everyone what you're all about? Yes. I'm Yoram Salman. Thank you. <laughs> it's, uh, well, let's see. Plano, Texas, focus on trust, how to build trust, be trusted, know who to trust. And I'm sure that at some point you're going to ask me how I got there. Originally from Israel, uh, after uh, 34 years and service in the Israeli Defense Forces, uh, last 10 years in the 35th Airborne, decided to uh, move to the U.S. for two years. That was 21 years ago. Moved to, obviously, California for five years, and then we moved to Texas and have been in Texas for the last, uh, what is it, uh, 18 years. No kidding. No kidding. It sounds like you've had uh, quite quite a shift in career then. How did you end up studying trust? Well, it's uh, 30 years ago, I was an engineer. So, you know, dealt with uh, software, hardware uh, development uh, most of the time. If you would have told me, if you would have told me uh, 30 years ago that uh, 30 years later, I'm going to be talking about trust, I would think that you're crazy. But uh, nevertheless, here we are. You know, I started as an engineer. I started with innovation. I was, uh, you know, one day I came up with this idea that we can put some kind of a display in a car. And um, if we scan a map and we use accelerometers, we can actually tell the driver where he or she is. Uh, you're laughing because, you know, it's called GPS. Well, this was before the U.S. even sent the first uh, GPS satellite up there. This is when I was 12. So had all kinds of weird ideas, and uh, I realized I'm pretty innovative. And so throughout my career, I was always involved with innovation, mainly in the engineering side. But then uh, one day I decided I'm going to start help companies be more innovative. So I started helping them be more innovative and uh, come up with ideas. And one of the most frustrating things for me was that we came up with great ideas, whether it was a company that I worked for or a company that I helped as a uh, consultant advisor. Great ideas, they never stick. Why don't they stick? That was just about the time that I had to work on my PhD 
a doctoral dissertation or at least come up with a topic. So this is in 2008. So so I'll give you the story. You know, you remember 2008. I mean, you being from New York, you remember you're around Wall Street, right? And so um, market crashed. I was working for Texas Instruments and Texas Instruments had just announced that they're going to let go of 1,400 employees. They just didn't say who. So you can imagine what it is to work for the company at that time. I mean, you don't know if you're on the list or not, but you have the economic crash. You have Texas Instruments reduction in force. The biggest challenge I had, I had to come up with a topic for my doctoral dissertation. So I did my doctoral in uh, organization and management. And so I need to come up with a topic. Well, uh, I'm on a call with my advisor, with my mentor. And... uh, I come up with ideas and he keeps shooting them down. I come up with new ideas, he keeps shooting them down. So just so that you know, you know what they call a person that at the end of the doctoral journey, you have to defend your dissertation. Mm -hmm. Now, you know what they call someone who barely manages to defend their dissertation? Barely. I mean, really barely. You know what they call them? Doctor. So it really doesn't matter. It's binary. It's you get it or you don't. You defend it or you didn't. Uh, Then the other thing that you hear at the university is that a good dissertation is a done dissertation. And so I'm sorry, but I'm aiming pretty low with the topic. And and Cordy, my mentor, keeps shooting down every idea that I come up with. He keeps shooting it down. And I get pretty frustrated, as you can imagine, until he asked me, a pivotal question. This was one of the most pivotal questions I was asked in my life. He asked me, what pisses you off? And so I wanted to say, well, you, I'm trying to come up with a topic and you don't let me. But the words that came out of my mouth were, why are people so much more creative when they work for startups than when they work for large mature companies? I worked for startups. I started startups. I sold startups. I bought startups. But at the time, as I said, I was working for Texas Instruments, a company that with 35,000 employees was anything but a startup. And so I wanted to know what makes people so much more creative when they work in startups than when they work in large, mature companies. There was quite on the other side of the line. And then he said, I think we have a topic. So I spent the next two years trying to understand why are people so much more creative when they work in startups than when they work in large, mature companies. I did my research all over the US, Canada, China, Europe, Israel, and I was done writing chapters one, two, and three, presented it to my uh, committee. They approved it, wrote chapter number four, presented it to my committee. They approved it. I was done with chapter five, which is the last one. Mm-hmm. called Cordy, my mentor, Sunday night. And I said, listen, I'm I'm done with chapter five. I just finished write, I just finished writing it now. He said, email it to me. So I asked him, can you give me another week just to you know go over it, clean it up one last time? He said, sure. Unfortunately, Cordy went to sleep Monday and did not wake up Tuesday. And uh, I actually dedicated my dissertation to him. I uh, dedicated it uh, to him and and his effort. I did graduate. Uh, My younger daughter uh, came with me uh, 
to my graduation. She was actually, both of them did come. Uh, my younger daughter, Shira, she was nine at the time. Uh, so we went to the graduation, we came back home. Shira had a friend over for a play date and uh, her friend said, where did you come uh, from? And Shira said, uh, oh, we just came back from my daddy's doctoral graduation ceremony. And so her friend asked her, uh, really? So your daddy's a doctor? And Shira thought about this for a second and she said, yeah, but not the useful kind. <laughs> so what really, what I researched was why are people more creative in startups than mature companies? But what I found was that it comes down to a culture of innovation. And a culture of innovation is what I found out later is based on the foundation of trust. And that's when I started mm. researching trust. Interesting. Wow. That's, um, you know, that makes a lot of sense, right? A mature company probably wants you to stay in between uh, in between the buoys that they have uh, laid out for you, whereas a, a startup is a little more innovative, a little more uh, daring to, to experiment and find new ways to do things versus the, the mature company just sticking with the tried and true. Actually, it's that that's kind of part of it. I boiled it down after, you know, writing a 348-page dissertation. I boiled it down to three components, two of them vertical between a leader and a follower, mm -hmm. and one of them horizontal uh, between members of the same team. The vertical ones, if you're a leader, it's your willingness to give autonomy freedom to your people, not to freedom yeah. to decide what they're going to do, but a freedom to decide how they're going to do it. Yeah. Now, if you give that, and that's what I found, that those relationships are reciprocal. If you give autonomy, you know what you get in response? You get accountability. Your people mm -hmm. are willing to try things. They're willing to take risks. They're willing to fail because they know that, that you're not going to make it the end of the world for them. By the way, what typically large companies do is instead of giving account, uh, autonomy, they give bureaucracy. When you get bureaucracy, you know what you do in response? CYA. I'm just going to do what I'm told to the letter. If I'm not sure about something, I'm going to ask. I'm not going to try. I'm not going to take risk. I'm going to ask. So give autonomy, you get accountability. Give bureaucracy, you get CYA. It gets even more interesting on the horizontal uh, dimension between people at the same level within the same team because they, it's their ability to hold what I call a constructive disagreement with the other two alternatives, destructive disagreement where everything is personal, emotional, and irrational, yeah. or office politics, right? Where we have the meeting before the meeting, the meeting after the meeting, just not the meeting during the meeting. But in startup companies, for the most part, it's your ability to hold the constructive disagreement. You're willing to be vulnerable. You're willing to provide direct, unfiltered feedback. And you're willing to receive feedback from people. And, th and th that's another story. So I wrote this. This was my seventh book at that time. It's called Culture Starts With You, Not Your Boss. And I wrote about those three, uh, three components. I sent the book out to the editors, and while the editors were reviewing it, I met with a potential client. And I sat down with them and I asked about autonomy versus bureaucracy, definitely bureaucracy. Accountability versus CYA, definitely CYA. Constructive disagreement, absolutely not. And 
as I start digging into that, what I realized was, you know, I, I like to ask why. Why do you why don't you give autonomy? Well, I don't trust them with autonomy. Okay. Well, why do employees don't are not accountable? Well, they don't trust management to uh, uh, to to have their back if they fail, to to be willing to let them fail. Well, let's talk about constructive disagreement. Uh, why aren't you willing to be vulnerable? Well, because I don't trust the other person with whatever I'm going to say. I don't want to ask stupid questions, suggest stupid ideas. Well, how about feedback? Why aren't you willing to give feedback? I don't trust uh, how they're going to behave. Why aren't you receptive to feedback? I don't trust uh, that they're coming with my best interest in mind. And I'm like hearing trust, 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 trust. This thing comes down to trust. And so I started researching. And it's funny because that book was the first time I ever wrote about trust. But the thing is, I wrote a six chapter, a six page epilogue chapter about trust. I edited it to the book after it came back from the editors. So if you get the book, Culture Starts With You, Not Your Boss, I can guarantee that all the typos and grammatical errors are in a six-page span, <laughs> that chapter that I added <laughs> after we were done. But ever since then, I started learning more about it, doing my own research, working with companies. I wrote, I wrote seven more books since then, including the big one is The Book of Trust, and there are some derivatives and and so on. So that's that's how I kind of got to trust. Wow. Yeah. No. I. You're um. You're so right. I mean, thinking about relationships, just reflecting on this in real time. Like, you know, if you don't have trust in a relationship, you don't you don't have anything. You know, you don't you don't have a functioning relationship. And that's whether it's a spousal relationship, a friendship, a employer to employee, a teammate to teammate. Like, they're they're all based on trust. That, that makes yeah. a lot of sense as to why it, it led you back to that one thing. So maybe this is a, a good time to ask you, what what does trust mean to you? Well, interesting question. First of all, I, I want to touch on, on how important it is one last time. Sure. I, I did a survey and I asked, I believe I had 363 responses. And I asked this question, what is the most important quality for you in other people. Now, first time I asked it, it was kind of open-ended. And so I got all the responses and categorized them and got down to the top five. Then I sent out a survey that was uh, multiple choices, but but really there are only five of them. And I'm sorry to interrupt number, you. I think you cut out for a second there. What was the, the question, the most important? What is the most important quality for you in other people? Okay. And so, I gave first, it was open-ended. Then I gave uh, five options based on the open-ended part of it. And the five options in number five, you want to know what came in number five? With 0.83%, three out of 363 people said that the most important quality for them in other people is good looks. <laughs> good looks. Wow. I'm surprised yeah, that yeah, did it at all. Number five. But then I started going up. Willingness to take risk, willingness to try things, uh, willingness to work hard, intelligence. And in number one, with 61.2%, more than the next four combined, their trustworthiness. Their trustworthiness. So you ask me, what does trust mean to me? 
Uh, I created in, in the book of trust, I created eight laws of trust. I actually didn't create them. I kind of, I report them as I learned them, as I found that this is how trust behaves. And so, first of all, I'm going to say there are people talking about trust. I'm not the only person talking about trust. Here is something that I do that is very unique. You know, when you take a personality assessment, assess yourself, most people think that you can assess your own trustworthiness. You cannot. The reason is because trust, and that's one of the most important things I'm going to say today, trust is relative. First of all, it is continuous. It's not binary. There is no, I trust you or I don't trust you. I trust you to a certain level. You know, when, when I do a keynote, I ask people, uh, I tell them, unfortunately, Lots of times I go to a conference and I forget my wallet at home or I drive, I forget my wallet at home. So I tell them, just raise your hand. How many of you are willing to lend me $20? Not give me, lend me $20. I promise as soon as I get home, I'm going to put $20 bill in an envelope, send it back, mail it back to you. How many of you are willing to lend me $20? Almost the everybody. Trust guy. Yeah. It's, it's uh, you know, what's the worst <laughs> thing that can happen, right? How about $100? Well, not everybody. How about a thousand? <laughs> one day I was doing that. I had an audience of 500 people. I asked, how about a thousand? There is one hand still up there. And I'm like, okay, 2,000. She raised, I never met her before. Don't know who she is. 2,000, she raises her hand. I'm like, whatever I do before I go home, I need to take her name and number because <laughs> the, whenever I need a loan of $2,000, I know who to call. Yeah. But uh, so trust is continuous. It is also contextual. You know, it's you trust me to do something, not necessarily something else. So it's contextual. Once again, it's relative. So how can I assess my trustworthiness if I don't know what context you need to trust me at? Trust is personal. It is individual. So um, if, if you think about that, there is a certain level of trust between you and me. A different level of trust between me and my wife, a different level of trust between you and whoever. There are every two people have different trusting relationship. Another example of this is uh, I also teach in college at uh, Southern Methodist University, SMU. And uh, one day I see my daughter. So both my daughters, one of them just graduated from college. The other one is still in college. And one day I noticed that she is, so Shira, that's the nine-year-old. She's in halfway through college now. And uh, one day I noticed that she's signing up to classes. And when she signs up to classes, she goes to a website called ratemyprofessors.com. Oh, yeah. Are you familiar with that, Andrew? I sure am, man. So I'm going, I, I asked my daughter, do you think that I have a page? I mean, being a professor and all, do I have a page? And she says, let's check. We check and I have a page. And I go and I look and, you know, I find this review. I get five out of five. Awesome. I'm awesome. And it says that this professor really cares about your success. And uh, he's this and that. And, and, you know, very practical, very actionable and so on. Like, cool. I go, I check the next one. One out of five. One is the lowest, by the way. There is no zero. One out of five. Awful. He is this and he's that, and but he's an easy grader. <laughs> at least that. They gave me that. But I'm looking at this, and this, this is anonymous. I'm looking at these two reviews. They were posted 
for the same course in the same semester. How can two people see you so differently? That's the thing. When we look at, uh, at trust and we think that it, it's all universal, it's not all universal. There are certain things that are universal. For example, telling the truth. Andrew, would you ever trust somebody who intentionally and consistently not telling you the truth? Not no. likely. The that, bad track record is not good. So that's universal. But then on a personal level, you know, it is unfortunate, but the uh, political divide that we have right now in our country, Republicans don't trust Democrats, Democrats don't trust Republicans. If I know that you're on the other side, there might be a trust issue. Procrastinators and non-procrastinators. Um, what is it? Extroverts versus introverts, marketing people or business people versus engineers. Th there is no trust there, even though there is no right and wrong. So trust right. is relative. You know, the other thing is trust is asymmetrical too. How is asymmetrical? Uh, I'm also a pilot. Let me ask you a question. Do you trust me? So, you know, let's say that you flew with me before and you saw that I take off and I land and I take off and I land. Do you trust me to land the plane? Do you trust me to fly you to your destination? Yeah, it sounds like you have a track record, your license. I'll, I'll take it. Let's go. We're going to go with yes. Yes. So uh, so you trust me to uh, take you. But does that mean that does trust have to be asymmetrical? Does that mean that I need to trust you to fly the plane? No. So all of that gets you to the point where, first of all, trust is relative. So I, I have eight of those laws, but you asked me for a specific definition. So I'm going to give you my specific definition that I have for trust. Trust is your willingness to accept the possible negative consequences of giving control of something you have over something you have to another person or thing, expecting them to do their best to minimize the negative consequences. Hmm. I know it's a mouthful, but if you think about it, every time you trust someone, why do you trust them? Because you are going to accept some kind of negative consequences because you let them do something. And you expect them to minimize those negative consequences. So think about it. Why do you take why, why do you take risk? Because there is a reward, right? So we're going to start with the reward. There is a certain reward that unfortunately you can't uh, get there by yourself. You have to take some risk. The risk is an objective thing, but in your mind, you translate it into fear. Some people are more afraid, some people are less afraid than the same objective risk, okay? You know, bungee cord, did you ever do a bungee cord? I haven't, I've gone skydiving though. You've gone skydiving, okay. Well, in case you I'm can use that, 35th Airborne, so uh, we got that in common. But um, there are certain things that you're not going to be willing to do, and I'm going to be willing to do because I'm not afraid of them as much as you are, even though the risk to us is the same, and vice versa. There are certain things that you're going to be willing to do, and I'm not because you are less afraid than I am of the same objective risk. So we have the reward, we have the risk, we have the level of fear. In order for me to feel safe, I need to know that somebody can compensate for that risk. I need to trust somebody. 
That somebody can be another person. It can be myself. It can be God. And it can be other things, which is kind of an indirect to other people that I never met. Hmm. How's that for a definition? No, I like that. That that makes a lot of sense. It's um because you know you're you're asking somebody to do something, and you know if if you trust them to do it, you are in, instead of well maybe instead of doing it yourself, you're going to, you know, in in that contract, you are accepting that it may not work out and that they could have a negative consequence, right? But you're, you're trusting them to, to do their best with it. I think that was a an interesting caveat you, you put in there. Am, am I getting that right or am I off? Yeah, yeah, no, you, you're, you're right on target. And again, this is when you start asking, so the $20, okay, why would you lend me $20? What's the reward for you? Well, the reward for you is maybe that you helped me. Uh, maybe that other people saw that you helped me. Sometimes we do things just so that other people will see. So that's your reward. What's the risk? The risk is $20. Objective, right? Objective, it's $20. Now, this is where, by the way, you get to the subjective part because for some people, $20 is a lot of money. For other people, $20 is nothing. So the level of fear that you have of losing this $20, different people will look at it differently. And now it comes to you trusting me in order to feel safe that, you know, the negative consequence, as small or big as it might be, in order for it to be compensated so you'll feel safe, you need to decide if you trust me enough. Mm. Interesting. I like this. I like this. So I like this too. Please, go ahead. No, I'm saying I like this too. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought you said I'll add this too. <laughs> gotcha. Um, so. I guess, you know, I kind of touched on it earlier saying that, you know, the basis of all relationships is trust, right? You need to have trust in a relationship. Um, have you come across kind of why that is in your research? Why the basic forever? It, it just, uh, first of all, in my research, I just correlated it statistically. Uh, why, uh, why are you willing to give autonomy? Well, the number one uh, thing that you can correlate to is uh, I, because I trust you. Uh, why are you willing to be accountable? I apply this mostly to the workplace. Uh, several times I was asked to take it outside uh, and you know talk about uh, one of the people that I interviewed for the Book of Trust is one of Israel's leading divorce attorney. Her name is Amy Behol Boni. And uh, she actually gave me stories and Every broken relationship that ended with divorce, which obviously she sees a lot of it, every time it, it ends with divorce, it's because of trust. It's because trust was not maintained. Uh, it could be over financials, which, which is one of the leading reasons. It could be because, you know, um, do you trust me that I'm not dating somebody else over you, that I'm not having an affair or... Everything just came down to trust, but I, I did yeah. not pursue that. I uh, I stayed with the um, organizational context, uh, context, and and it just, you know, when when you use the why 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 series, you know, you uh, why are we not uh, productive? Well, we're not productive because uh, I'm being micromanaged by you. Well, why am uh, why are you micromanaging me? Well, because you don't trust me that I will do sure. my job because 
if I don't do your, my job, I put your job at risk. You, my manager, I put your job at risk. And so, you know, it's the same structure. It comes down to one thing and one thing only. You don't trust yeah. me. It's the, the glue that holds everything together, right? Yes. Oh, this is this is something else that's funny. That uh, I, I start my my conference, uh, my my workshops, my keynotes by asking about the glue that holds everything together, and it is. Ah. You know, if you think about it, uh, in a um, in an organization, we focus on two areas when we want to improve an organization. We focus on two areas, and we miss the third one. The one that uh, the two that we focus on, one of them is personal development. So personal development uh, can be technical skills, can be uh, soft skills, you know, empathy and things like that. Trust is not a skill. Trust is not a skill. Trust is a characteristic, and it is again, it is relative. So it's in the eyes of the beholder, of the person who you want to be trusted by. But um, so we focus on, on growing the individual. Then we focus on growing the organization. How do we grow the organization? Strategic planning, ideation, innovation workshops, and uh, Six Sigma, and, and everything that, that will grow the organization. But what's missing is that glue that takes those individuals that you help grow professionally and personally turn them into a team. So one, one of the things that I say typically is that um, trust is what takes a group of creative, productive, and effective individuals and turns them into a creative, productive, and effective company. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. All of your efforts to try and build strategies, and, and, and this is how this whole thing started for me, to trying to help companies innovate. So we came up with ideas, but they never stuck. And the reason they never stuck was because there was no trust there to take it to the next step. You know, whether you don't trust your top management to uh, do the right thing, uh, you don't, uh, they don't trust you with resources and, and time, uh, that's where those ideas vaporate. Yeah. So you work a lot with companies, right? Helping companies kind of leverage this and grow. But you said you start with individuals. Right. Correct? So here's here's my, my perspective on this. Um, trust, there is no such thing as the level of trust in an organization. Not really. The level of trust in an organization is made of the individual trusting relationships between every two individuals in the organization that rely on one another. So your third principle of trust, right? Yeah, yeah. So um, so the first thing is you can't build trust in the organization without building trust in individual relationships. So we start with that. The second thing is that building trust does not happen by me telling you what you must do to earn my trust. It starts by me earning your trust. So I always focus on 
you know, let, let's break it down. So we have the organization. The level of trust in the organization is not good enough. What do we do? We start breaking it down into individual relationships. Every two people that have a reliance, reliance relationship between them. So now in every two, every relationship like this, I look at this relationship twice. A trusting B, B trusting A. Okay, I, I don't know, maybe A relies on B, B does not rely on A, so I don't care about the second one. I care more about why does A not rely on B? But A would help me understand why they don't rely on B. B is the one who's going to have to do the work. So I developed this seven-step process that helps you identify, first of all, well, we start with identifying the relationship, but then it helps you identify what is it that you're doing that's bad, that's holding you back from being more trusted by the other person. So notice that, that I focus on the bad and not on the good. And there is a reason for that. There was a lot of research, including research from Danielle Kahneman and Mostversky that came up with the prospect theory in 1979 and uh, won the Nobel Prize for Economics in 2002. Uh, there is a ratio called the critical positivity ratio or the Losada ratio that uh, from Barbara Erickson, uh, Fredrickson, I'm sorry, um, that claimed uh, if you ever Googled the number 2.9013, that's what's going to come up. And what she claims is that we respond three times stronger to negative things than to positive things. This is why, by the way, you are more likely, much more likely, maybe three times, maybe 2.9013 times, more likely to post a negative review if you had a negative experience than to post a positive review if we had, if you had a positive experience. So sure. if I want to be more trusted by you, should I try and do one more good thing or eliminate one bad thing? Eliminate one bad thing because that has three times the impact on your trust in me than doing one more good thing. So in that process, I help people identify what is that the one bad thing that you do. And once we identify this, now the question is, what habit should you develop to counteract it? And then we developed the habit. I actually created a series of online courses with that. Uh, they're called trustedatwork.com. So again, mm. mainly focused on the workspace, actually focused on the workspace, uh, trustedatwork.com. And, and in those courses, I explain it, I give examples, and I take them through those seven steps. Interesting. Yeah, so it's almost like, you know, being trustworthy should be the default. And the real issue is just the, the the habit you have that's making you not trustworthy, that that barrier. It's more about removing that barrier than it is adding something else, right? Exactly. Yes. Interesting. I like that. Um, cool. So I guess, you know, you I was going to ask you kind of how you help organizations build trust and ask you um, kind of, so you work with individuals then and help those individual relationships. Do you do anything on more of a, like a whole uh, company level um, outside of working with just individuals on fostering those those relationships? Well, the, the typically the way that I work with organizations, I mean, obviously this is an organizational interest. Uh, you, you rarely find an individual in the organization that would reach out to me and say, I wanna be more trusted. 
Uh, one interesting thing, by the way, is the team size. I have my own podcast. I don't know if you noticed. And in case you haven't noticed, it's called The Trust Show. Uh, and uh, to make it easy, you can find it at thetrustshow.com. But uh, in that, I I explained this process. And the first, the first episode that I recorded, it's, it's a brand new podcast. The first episode that I recorded... Uh, is called Does Team Size Matter for Trust? And uh, and it is. It does. Uh, there was research uh, that was done by Robin Dunbar. I think it was in the 1980s, maybe. Uh, that that was. Uh, he's a British anthropologist, and uh, he did research on the size of our brain and correlated it to the size of our uh, network. Uh, social network, network of people who you f you know and, and you can call friends or people you can rely on. And as you shrink that size, you get people that you trust more and more and more and more. So, Andrew, for example, take yourself. If you start thinking about how many people do you really, really, really trust? I mean, how many people do you trust with your life? Uh, th there's a reason why a SEAL team has four or five members. There is a reason why every special forces team has that size, uh, that that number of members, and not more, mm. because you're limited. Uh, somebody <laughs> suggested a question for me. I'm not sure that I'm going to use that, but it's uh, how many people can you trust to help you hide the body? <laughs> so you know, you can you count that on more than one uh, on on one hand? You probably can only count that on one hand. Sure. And the reason, that there are several reasons for that. One of them is that, um, think about this. You're part of being having a constructive disagreement, arguing in a very passionate but productive way. What happens? I, I mean, you need to be vulnerable. You need to be willing to ask stupid questions, suggest stupid ideas, really be vulnerable. What happens? If let's take you have four members of the team, you trust all of them with your life. What level of vulnerability do you think you're going to have with them? Highest possible, right? I mean, you Probably trust yeah. them with your life. Add one more member to that team. That member, you don't trust. How vulnerable are you willing to be with the entire team now? Mm. The level of vulnerability is dictated by the least level of trust that you have in the organization. So what do I do? First of all, try to understand the organization, how the organization is connected. I have a, a tool that I developed. Uh, it's an online tool that I call Trust Tracker 360. Uh, and in that tool, first of all, you identify the level of reliance that every member of the team has on another one. Again, this is important because if I don't rely on you, for the uh, the uh, deliverable of the team, the outcome of the team, doesn't matter how much I trust you. I just I, I don't need to rely on you. So I try to identify the reliance relationship. Who depends on who? Who relies on who? Then, in every one of those relationships, we break it down into what's the level of trust between those two members, and then work with the uh, call it the trustee versus the trustor the person that needs to be trusted, identify that one bad thing 
let's replace it with one good thing. So even though I, I say that I work with every one of them individually, typically the way we do that is uh, we do that through my online courses that complement kicking it off as a company. So, uh, you know, take uh, next week, I have three different companies that I'm doing that with, uh, where we're going to start with this kickoff, a three-hour workshop to explain the entire concept. Then we're going to go off to the uh, assessments, to the team assessments, the Trust Tracker 360, and then each one of them will be working on their own trustworthiness habit. Gotcha. <clears throat> that makes sense. So it's it's more about those teams and how they trust each other than it is like overall company policy and, and, and that kind of thing. You do not fix trust with a policy. Yes. <laughs> I Yes, 100%. I, that's why I... When I read you your, shall uh, be trusting each other between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. And after 5 p.m., the level of trust may decrease from 100% to 83%. Or else. Or else, yeah. <laughs> because that's going to work. Yeah. Oh, you, you might trust the organization on their or else threat, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I saw your uh, your eight laws of trust, and I saw the the personal one, I was like, I, that resonated with me. That makes a lot of sense. So, question for you: What do you, what um, I guess commonly referenced advice or maxim about trust do you hear that's that you disagree with or, or is wrong? Well, what's what's a what's a example of some bad advice about trust that you commonly hear? Well, the the first thing is is really the the uh, the approach that trust is universal. That there are certain things that if you do them, you will be trusted. If you don't do them, you will not be trusted. And that's not true. There are, I'm sorry, there are a few universal things, but for the most part, every relationship has its unique characteristics, and uh, trust can be built between people that. Uh, other people will never trust. So trust is not universal. It is relative. And so that's that's one of the biggest things. You know, whenever I see somebody coming up with a trust a trustworthiness assessment, I cringe because there is no such thing. I mean, this is not like a Myers-Briggs where you're going to tell me if I'm an extrovert or an introvert because right. I'm going to tell you if I'm an extrovert or introvert by answering seven questions, right? This is... I can't tell you what I do to be trusted by you, not unless, not until I know what is it that, what are the values that we have? I call it the personality compatibility that we have. Mm. So that's one of, uh, that's one of the biggest things. The other thing is that uh, when, you know, if you take Myers-Briggs, for example, I took Myers-Briggs three times in my life, I think over the span of maybe 20 years. Three times, the results came back exactly the same. I did DISC several times. Ex results came back exactly the same. Can't say the same thing about trustworthiness for two reasons. One, it's because the way you trust me is not the same way as somebody else trusts me. It's relative. The second one is the trust, unlike the other characteristics, changes over time because trust is dynamic. So, for example, if you think about that, Let's say that we met today. At the end of this, uh, you're going to say to yourself, you know what? I think I can trust Yoram to be a good guest in the future. 
Okay, why? Uh, Yoram has good background, good setting, good sound, uh, good camera. Um, he is the a great shirt, great shirt, color chosen by Shira, my daughter. There was no way I would ever choose purple as a shirt, but <laughs> it's a color for a shirt. But uh, so, and, and you know, Yoram showed up on time and he answered all the questions. He had all the background material. That I can trust Yoram as a guest. That's today. A year from now, you're starting to look at your list of people that you interviewed in the past thinking, you know, I can't find any new guests. I need to get some of the guests in the past. You come across my name. You don't trust me the same level as you did at the end of the call today. You know why? Because a year has passed. Mm -hmm. This is a self-defense mechanism that you have that prevents you from keeping the same level of trust with a person you haven't seen in a long time. Trust is dynamic. It changes. It's like a Every, recency bias, right? Or something like that? Uh, there is an element of that. Um, th th that that's kind of the, your self-defense mechanism. By the way, here's, you want a trick? You want a tip? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, yes, definitely. Okay, so here's the tip. When you communicate with someone in person, Number one, in person, highest level of intimacy. We communicate over email. We communicate all the time over email. I'll tell you a story. I was running a $100 million business unit in Texas Instruments. And one of my peers came to me and said, you know what? You keep communicating with your people over email. Well, you know, it's easy. It's comfortable. It's, they're all in the same building, but, but it's easy and comfortable to, to communicate with email. I don't need to leave my office. Well, as it turns out, email messages or textual messages in general are a lot easier to misinterpret and you fill the gap in what's missing so, so you can mis misinterpret what's there and you build assumptions into what's not there, okay? Mm -hmm. Well, his advice to me was get your butt out of your office. And so I started going and seeing people in person. Well, that does several things. The, the level of intimacy being in person means that you can see my body language. And uh, have you heard of Albert Morabian and the 738-55 rule? I have not, no. You Okay, say yes. Of course, I did. Yes. Yes, so this is, certainly. Yeah, this is one of the most <laughs> misquoted rules in history. So Albert Morabian, I believe he's from UCLA, uh, wrote, uh, he did research in the late 60s and published it in a book called Silent Messages in 1971. And in that book, what people said or claimed that he said, which is not exactly true, is that communication is conveyed 7% through uh, the tone, uh, through the words, 38% through the tone of voice, 55% uh, through body language. That's not what he said. He said that you like other people, you have feelings for other people, 7% based on the words that they use, 38% based on their tone of voice, 55% based on their body language. Now, mm. I looked at his research and you know, I can argue with uh, with that research and how you reach those numbers. I mean, once you hear the number 738.55, it makes sense. And, it, you know, it grabs you because those are numbers, pretty precise numbers. I can argue with, with his research. But in the forward to the book, he wrote a very powerful sentence, statement. 
he said that when your body language, when your verbal and nonverbal communications are not consistent, people distrust you. So this is so powerful. If I come to you face to face, even what we're doing now, you can still see my face. Maybe you can see my the rest of my body language, uh, but most of our emotions are conveyed through your facial expression. So you can see my facial expression. Uh, by the way, this is one of the reasons why I'm looking at the camera and not looking at where you are on the screen right now. This gives you a better insight to the consistency of what I'm saying and uh, and my my body language and my nonverbal communication. Because you can feel that consistency, you trust me. So when I go and I visit with people and they can see that my body language, my nonverbal communication and verbal communication are consistent, they trust me. They trust me much faster than if I communicate with them over email. That makes a lot of sense. You know, you, you hear about things getting misconstrued over text and email all the time. And as much as it is efficient, you, you lose a lot with it. And and just even honestly, even doing this podcast, um, when I first started it, I was like, I'm only doing it in person. I like doing it in person. You know, you have somebody in the same room. It's just a richer conversation. Get more out of communication. But um, obviously, you know, with the Internet, there are benefits like, you know, I would have been uh, much harder to get you here to, to do this podcast than us being able to jump on this. So, you know, there, of course, are benefits, but no, it makes sense. Like the communication is just a lot richer when it's in person. Yeah. So I can see why it leads to more trust. Interesting. Cool. Um, Yoram, how, or, or how would you say all of your research on trust has most impacted your life personally? One, I realized that I cannot be trusted. <laughs> <laughs> By who? No, it, you know, it's funny uh, how when you have this level of deep understanding of, of a certain aspect of life, and, and again, th this is an aspect of life. It's an aspect of my personal life, uh, my relationships with my wife, with my daughters, with my friends. Uh, it's my relationships with my customers. It's a relationship with the vendors and so on. Uh, you become more aware, more self-aware of what you do. Now, there, there's something that when I do the workshop and I explain to people how to become more trustworthy uh, so that they can become more trusted, then um, I, I tell them very specifically, I don't want you to use this to trick people to trust you. Because this this would be a one-time thing. The, the truth will finally come out and uh, you will be anything but trusted. I mean, this would cause a deep hole in your trustworthiness. But it helped me understand how if I need to be trusted by someone, what is it that I need to do? What is it that I need to focus on? What is it that I'm doing if I feel that somebody doesn't trust me? I'm a lot more self-aware of what I can do. And, you know, I, I end up advising a lot of my friends and, and family, you know, the, you, you feel that this other person doesn't trust you. Let me tell you what is it that you do that causes this and uh, work on that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It's, uh, it's a powerful tool, like, kind of like you were saying, you know, if you misuse it, it's, uh, it's not going to end well for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
kind of to shift gears here, uh, can you take us through how you got the opportunity to do a TED Talk? <laughs> how did I get the opportunity to do the TED Talk? So it's it's actually kind of funny because my TED Talk is not directly related to it. I wrote a book in uh, early 2018 called Cause of Death, Political Correctness, How PC Kills Creativity, Productivity, and Children. I collaborated with Lori Van. She is a psychology for non-suicidal self-injuries and, and suicide in, in teenagers. And, and we talked about that, and we found a lot of common language and, and what is it that we do with political correctness. And, and so I started writing it down, and uh, this is how that book came out. Well, at that time, there was a new TED Talk that was about a new TEDx event that was about to be uh, created. And um, they reached out to someone. I, I was, uh, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take a step back. Back in 2014, I went through a uh, program called Leadership Plano. It's a uh, leadership program within the city of Plano, Texas. And uh, we needed to come up with a project. And we decided that our project is going to be to put together the first TEDx Plano. And so we created TEDx Plano in 2014. And it has been going around for the last, well, eight years. So it's been going on every year. And uh, that first one, I was actually the host. Uh, so I was on stage uh, introducing the speakers and uh, buying time and so on. And, and we handed it over to the city of Plano. Well, uh, I could not get to speak at TEDx Plano because I was also an elected official. So in 2015, uh -huh. I got elected to the uh, Plano Independent School District Board, and uh, I served on the board for four years. So Plano did not want to have me on TEDx Plano because, you know, they, they don't want to get elected officials uh, some kind of privilege. So another event was about to start in Dallas, and they reached out to Plano to get advice. And Plano said, we have a speaker for you that uh, can't speak here because he's an elected official. So they reached out to me and said, you know what? Can you fill all the forms, the application forms, you know, the, the standard application forms? I said, look, I, I can. I have several topics. So let's let's talk over the phone. And, and just to kind of get a sense of which one of the topics would you be most interested in? So we got on the phone. This would be the best advice I can give you. And again, this goes back into uh, the intimacy of the communication. So we yeah. get on the phone and I said, look, you know, I can do a, a TED talk about uh, the worst diet ever. So an interesting uh, method that I developed back in 2012 on how I lost 32 pounds. Uh, very interesting, and it, again, it, it is based on motivation. How do you find the motivation to that? So at some point, if you would like, you can interview me, uh, and I'll tell you the story of worst diet ever. <laughs> but um, so I told him that, and, and you know, I can talk about trust and, and this. Uh, and again, the book, uh, Cause of Death, Political Correctness, was just about to come out, and I asked him, um, there is something interesting that my in my research I just found. What if I told you? First of all, I, I don't know that you knew that, Andrew, but uh, you know the U.S. can lead the world in a lot of things. I mean, the, we lead the world in the size of our, our military. We lead the world in. But here is one thing you don't want to lead the world in: we lead the world in the percentage of our GDP that we spend on civil litigation. 
1.7% of our GDP goes to civil litigation. And, and just to put it in perspective, take, uh, take uh, uh, Canada, the United Kingdom, the entire European Union, and Japan combined twice. That's how much we spend on civil litigation. 80% of the world lawyers live here in the US. One in 240 people. By the way, one in 13 in Washington, D.C. Just saying. Whoa. <laughs> but one in 13. And I'm talking all ages. So, you know, the 13 include retired people and they include babies and kids in school. And one in 13 is a lawyer. So wow. I started researching and I, I, I found something really, really interesting. So, you know, this is kind of why this and why that and why that. Yeah. And I asked him a simple question. If I told you that the reason we have so many lawyers here, and as a result, we have the level of civil litigation that we have, and I claim that as a result, the level of political correctness that we have, because we're so afraid of getting sued. Right. What if I told you that we have that level, that number of lawyers in the US because of one event that happened one night? 50 years ago. He goes, are you serious? I said, yes. And, and it's in the book. What is it? So I started taking him backwards. Mm -hmm. We have this and that many lawyers. And what happened? What happened? What happened? Then I went from the other side and I closed the loop. We have more lawyers than any other country in the world because of one event that happened 50 years ago, one night. That's wild. Did you see the TED talk? I did. Um, I didn't. Do, do you want to? Do you want to explain? No, no, no. Not, uh, let let oh. the viewers, uh, you the viewers, go and check uh, TED. It's actually my TED talk ended up being on the TED website, TED.com. Uh, not just a TEDx uh, YouTube, oh, really? TED.com. So if you go to TED.com, you look up uh, Yoram Solomon, you're going to find a TED Talk called The Day That Forever Changed America's Culture. And there it is. 15 minutes and 11 seconds later, you're going to know what that event is. <laughs> Deal. I uh, I did watch it. Um, I, I could not believe the, the connection you drew. It was incredible. So maybe we can uh, leave people on a cliffhanger with that. Yeah. <laughs> Before we uh, close out, is there anything um, you wanted to mention about trust that, that we didn't get to? You know, I'll, I'll just tell you what, what I typically say at the end. Please. At the end of, of a, a, a keynote, when, when I give a keynote. The answer to these two questions will have the biggest impact on your personal and professional success or failure, can I trust you and can you trust me? That's the biggest impact on your life. Great questions to leave on. I love it. Yoram, thank you so much for being here, man. I, this was a great conversation. I, I took a lot away from it and I'm gonna have to go back and, and listen again to, <laughs> to get it all. Thanks for having me, Andrew. <laughs>